I can't go on with the scene. I'm too happy. Mr. DeMille, do you mind if I say a few words? Thank you. I just want to tell you all how happy I am to be back in the studio, making a picture again. You don't know how much I've missed all of you. And I promise you I'll never desert you again. Because after Salome, we'll make another picture and another picture. You see, this is my life. It always will be. There's nothing else. Just us. And the cameras. And those wonderful people out there in the dark. All right, Mr. DeMille, I'm ready for my close-up. Welcome back to Film School 101. Classes in session. Uh, we are here today with a recurring guest and good friend, uh, Mr. Jake Rodal. Jake, welcome back to the podcast. Hey everyone, glad to be back. Thank you. You know, uh, you may remember Jake from such episodes as Vertigo and Nausicaa of the Valley of the Wind. Yeah, this has been, uh, you know, we, we see we seem to we seem to have a thing where we, we bring in Jake to really help round out discussion on some. Uh, very pivotal and in, in, in dense films. Um, so I think today's film is going to be a really good one to have have Jake here, have you here to to help us, you know, bring the discussion Rain full circle. In. Yeah, <laughs> reining in or expand it out. Who knows? A uh, little but, bit of both. So I guess we yeah to get right to it. Right, we're doing Mulholland Drive from two thousand one this week, or this episode, uh, which we I guess we paired with uh, Black Swan. We did. Yeah. Um, I think the the real connection there, you know, we, we sort of started off with this pairing. I think, like, your thought was, like, people in high-pressure performing-type roles. But I think this, what we kind of really landed on is it's more, they're both, like, very surrealist-type movies. Yeah. Um, and they're still about, like, a, a central female character trying to make it in, in these, like, high-pressure performing-type roles. You know, ballerina versus actress. But uh, I think it really is, like, the surreal aspect of both of them. Um, that connects them more so than maybe what we were originally going for. Yeah, I would agree. It's it's not necessarily the whole performance aspect of it as it is the execution of the film, um, which is interesting. I don't think we've actually ever really done that where we've connected uh, a theme more on like how the film is done and shot as opposed to like ostensibly what the film is about, if you will. Yeah. Um, this is the first time first time I watched Mulholland Drive. I think you've seen it before, Jake. This is has this your first time watching it or uh, second time. Oh, very yeah. cool. Okay. Yeah, because you, uh, I think we've chatted about Lynch a fair few times. Yeah, big fan of Lynch. Definitely have watched all of Twin Peaks. I've seen Eraserhead yeah. as well as Blue Velvet. So I'm a big fan. Yeah. Kind of I, like, I don't think he's overhyped. I think it's at the right Oh, level. interesting. Yeah. For the viewers at home, David, that's uh, David Lynch, the director of the movie. Yeah. That's fair. I guess I should have, I should have let in and explained. Uh, yeah. <laughs> This is this is David David Lynch, director of the film, but um, you're kind of like the Lynch expert then, you know. You've seen more than me, I guess. And uh, did you say? Have you seen Blue Velvet? Yes. Okay, I like mm. I like that one too. Oh, it's great! It's awesome. Yeah, yeah. Um, so we're connecting kind of on the basis of how these films are shot a little bit more, which is you know going into it, I feel like the the storyline though between the two of them is is pretty different um, in terms of execution. Like Black Swan has those like surrealist aspects but it doesn't have quite the same like mystery component you know as a viewer you're not really left to like wonder like huh like what what is going on like how do i piece together this film if you will it's, it's a little more of a straightforward kind of like hey we're just gonna we're gonna take a theme about like ballerina put under intense pressure and put it out on the screen whereas the holland drive is a little bit more like 
kind of to piece the film together, figure out the mystery yeah. a little bit, and it's going to be personal to you in some way. Yeah, I think Black Swan, uh, the structure, start to finish, it's just a slow, like, ramp up yeah. from start to finish, where you're just, it's really just cranking up the intensity and cranking up the, like, uh, psychological duress from start to finish, whereas, mm-hmm. uh, as we know, Mulholland Drive structurally is very different. Which I guess we should have prefaced before we jump into it. Massive spoilers on Mulholland Drive yeah. coming up. <laughs> which, like, I don't know, I would recommend if you haven't seen this movie, stop listening right now and uh, go watch it. This is a movie, like, you really only get one chance to see it first time. That's and fair. And it kind of, I think it ruins it if you uh, have it spoiled. Yeah, don't watch, I would say maybe watch the trailer, don't read reviews about it. Like, if you really just want a good experience, just go in blind. I think that's the best way to watch this movie. Because I was trying to pitch this to Zach as to why we should watch it. Yeah. And be like, well, how does it connect? I was just like, I don't want, really want to tell you that much because, like, I don't want to... Uh, I was looking like Wikipedia calls it a surrealist neo noir mystery film, and I think even that doesn't like quite capture what it's trying to do. That's just so it has a label and a genre. Exactly. <laughs> that, yeah, they they needed to connect it in some way. That's fair. Uh, even more generically, psychological thriller. Which mm-hmm. even that, I don't know if that's what I would call it. So yeah. Anyway. And to go back to Black Swan, I think for me the real distinction is that Portman's character is really at the center of that universe and world where she truly, like, the world that we're learning about is from her experience and exposure. Okay. Whereas Mulholland Drive, you know, there's just so much texture with how each character is presented. You don't really know who to follow. Mm, Like, you have an idea of who the main character is. Yeah. But I'd say the focus throughout the film, it really goes out of its way to show you little portraits, vignettes, to just kind of describe the universe and what it is to kind of live near Mulholland Drive in Hollywood at that time. Yeah. You go for it. I, as I was saying, one of the things you talked about a lot, Zach, in uh, The Black Swan was how we are really centered in Nina's head the whole time. I was going to say, yeah. Okay, yeah. Mm-hmm. And so, like, even, like, her hallucinations or whatever else, like, were in her head, whereas, yeah, yeah. I think that's completely different. Jake Mulholland Drive, we're kind of backing up. The whole world's kind of like a hallucination, and we're not really sure. Like, even the identities are in question, right? Of, right. Like, some of the central characters. Yeah, that's and, and it's interesting given that they both approach that same kind of surrealist aspect. Then, and it, like as much as the execution of the surrealist aspect is similar between the two films, like yeah, the by taking the viewpoint into more the world itself, you can even kind of get that. And this is maybe a little bit baseline, but you can kind of get that in the title of the film, yeah. right? Like Black Swan, we are focused on a single entity, a person, yep. Nina, yep. versus Mulholland Drive. It's the world. It's the place that these characters inhabit that is really, mm-hmm. you know, the main character, if you will. Um, and I think that's just because, like, the films are, as much as their execution is similar, and their their theme is kind of similar, they're trying to get at two different endpoints, right? Mm-hmm. Black Swan maybe trying to show a tragedy of a single person, and Mulholland Drive trying to show a tragedy of an entire place, of yeah. an entire, like, space, if you will. Um yeah, so I think that that's yeah, it, it is an interesting call out though that yeah. you know we take the, we take the viewpoints of those two different and I think you'd mentioned uh, both of you guys have done research maybe the reason Mahalman drives a little more about the world is because it was apparently supposed to be a TV show yeah that's a great yeah. segue into background yeah you know, Jake you want to talk about definitely so Twin Peaks it kind of it ended poorly or at least not the way David Lynch wanted it to so he had to wrap it up quick and that's why the ending I think it. Some people like it, some people don't. Um, and so he wanted to have a spin-off, and instead of using the same kind of random northwest town that not many knew about, 
he decided to use Mulholland Drive, and his thought was to kind of take the same kind of universe and do it in Hollywood. Um, and so in the process of doing that, he actually generated a pilot, and I believe you can find it on, not the dark web, but probably Pirate Bay or some sure. torrent site or something. <laughs> we, we do um, not endorse the dark web here. No, no. I, endorse, <laughs> I personally endorse the dark web. <laughs> um, and basically when the pilot was generated, ABC was the, the channel it was going to be on. They just said, no, let's convert it to a full feature. And that's where some of the moments in the movie lend itself to kind of an actual pilot or episode. Um, And that's where I think he added the sex scene, just so it would be rated R, like that wouldn't have been on ABC. Mm. Um, I think... A family network. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. True. So basically the way it ended up is he needed to, same scenario in Twin Peaks in a way, where Mm. he needed to wrap this up in a way where it could be a feature film. And I think that's where the ending, some people like it, some people don't. Yeah. But in the end of the day, right, it's similar. That's why they're both so great is because the death of Laura Palmer doesn't really matter. It's mm-hmm. just more of kind of a litmus test or kind of seeing how each character reacts to it. And in right. the same way, I think that's how this would have played out. The death of Diane or Betty, you know, they would just see the universe play out and how each character would react. Would take it. Yeah. Yeah, that's an interesting piece of background, especially in forms like, because gi- given the, the, so Lynch's personal, like, experience on having done Twin Peaks, mm-hmm. but then also combining that this film is uh, directly inspired by Sunset Boulevard, you know, an earlier 50s film as well, so it's kind of like the merging of these two mm-hmm. aspects, the one being his direct experience doing Twin Peaks, and the other being, like, Sunset Boulevard, a favorite film, I think it's his, like, over time favorite film you even mentioned. Mm-hmm. Um, and the really? Kind of, yeah, yeah, apparently, and so... Mm-hmm. Uh, like the collision of those two different threads into this specific film, yeah. Um, taking yeah. yeah this this taking what he's done before as well as what he's been inspired by. Yeah, yeah. And then uh, kind of like wrap, rounding out the background, but uh, the the cast here was like a lot of mostly unknowns. Um, the actual probably the biggest name on it uh, at the time would have been Robert Forster, who like you're like who's that. Right, um, he's one of the <laughs> yeah. He's one of the two police officers at the beginning. He's like the chief who's like, seems like someone's missing, you know. And he's only in one scene, but like at the time, he would have been the most famous, like most. That's kind of crazy. Recognizable yeah, actor. Um, yeah, Naomi Watts was basically unknown. Uh, yeah. She was like thinking about quitting Hollywood. I oh, think. really? Yeah. Yeah, I think uh, she'd been looking for like ten years or something crazy yeah. from us. Yeah, and wow. so I think he specifically chose her for that reason. She was perfect for the character. Yeah, she too had been kicked out. Oh, yeah, okay. Yeah. Out she was on her process. way to move out. Yeah, and I think that's why the depravity worked so well. Oh, interesting. Uh, and then, uh, huh. so yeah, yeah, Naomi Watts playing uh, Betty slash Diane, right? Yeah. And then uh, Laura Haring. Um, I don't think she really wanted to do much else after, uh, so she plays Rita. But uh, just fun fact about her, she was the first Hispanic woman to be crowned Miss USA. So Really? Huh. That was Go all figure. I really found interesting in the bio. Um, and then <laughs> Justin Thoreau. Who, That's a big one. That's a big one. Uh, That's an ex- achievement, man. Come on. <laughs> Justin Thoreau, who plays uh, Adam, right? Yeah. The director. Um, we've seen him in some suit stuff since, right? Writer of Tropic Thunder. Yeah, got, he is. Yeah, he is. Yeah, He's yeah. heavily involved in Tropic oh. Thunder. Got uh, yeah. married to Jen Aniston too, I think. I Leftovers do. as well. I think that finally ended huh. from and, HBO. Uh, but I guess so. He was mostly unknown. I think up until this point, he had had a couple. Uh, he he played one of Carrie Bradshaw's like boyfriends in Sex and the City. 
Um, That's his best role. <laughs> interesting thing about that role, so again, this is all part of the research. He showed up, played one boyfriend. They liked him so much, they were like, hey, we want to bring you back to play a different boyfriend. SJP and, loved you. Uh, so they, <laughs> SJP. And so all they did was like shave his head and put glasses on him. Uh, and at the time, no one noticed, but then once like subsequent like DVD came out, you know, like as it was. That's fair. Yeah, yeah. once DVD came out, people like noticed, but you know, while it I was mean, airing like live. That Widow's Peak is so identifiable. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think it's cool. Like, you know, this is cast of mostly unknowns, and then they kind of went on to, to greater things. And in one, yeah, and it almost like mimics probably then they would have been the best cast to pick, right? People that had been not necessarily at the forefront well, of the Hollywood system. Let's not forget about Billy Ray Cyrus. Let's well, not forget about, that's the biggest star in this film. His break, <laughs> his breakout role in Mulholland Drive as <laughs> the, the pool boy, the pool boy, oh, yeah. the adulterer, if you will. Um, do, uh, should we should we jump into a quick recap of the film itself? Yeah, if you think you got it uh, for this one. This will be my finest moment. All right. Um, all right. So the way that I kind of break it up is there's... Yeah. <laughs> oh, okay. The way I kind of break it up um, is that there's like a, a reality and then there's going to be the dream-ality, if you will. Um, so the reality that you're not really privy to until the end of the film in the last half um, is Diane wins a jitterbug competition, and moves out to Hollywood to try and make it big. Has all these expectations on her. When she gets to Hollywood, she doesn't make it big. She gets passed up for big roles. She kind of takes like smaller roles, mainly through a connection that she forms with uh, another actress, Camille, who actually does have the big roles. Um, there's some questions around whether or not Camille made... Camilla. Oh, whoops, Camilla. <laughs> She's Camille to me, and that's my dreamality. There's some questions around whether Camilla... Uh, made it to the top based off of skill alone or whether it was due to some backroom deals if you will a bit of the casting couch um and so as as time goes on camilla and diane start a relationship uh that becomes intimate um and it, towards the end of the film you realize that this is uh gotten to the point where diane is now so jealous of camilla um that she hires an assassin to kill her because Camilla eventually like abandons her, right? Um, that's for, fair. For yeah. The director. yeah, that's the one part I was missing. Is that Camilla abandons Diane, leaves her in the dust? They like want to be friends. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> they, yeah. And she pushes her out. That's the scene I remember. Right. Diane's like, stay out. Yes, and so um, the the assassin leaves behind a blue key, an indication that uh, the, the the hit worked, um, and so Camilla is now dead, and Diane has to racked with guilt, um, ends up killing herself as well. Um, so that's kind of like the reality. The dreamality is this completely different story in which Diane makes it big in Hollywood. Camilla is actually involved in a car crash. It's not that she was killed. Um, it's just that right before she was about to be killed, the car crash comes in and interrupts the assassination attempt. She has amnesia. Uh, her name is, she thinks her name is Rita. She takes that from a poster that she finds yeah, Rita in, yeah, yeah, in yeah. Diane's aunt's apartment that she stumbles into. Uh, so now in this new reality, Diane is you know, immediately a huge star and she's impressing everybody in Hollywood. Um, and the only reason that she gets rejected for this part in this big film is because there's this cabal, the um, Stigliaggi brothers. Oh, Castiglini. Castiglini or, brothers. Yeah. This this sort of Hollywood <laughs> mafia um, that prevents her and chooses a different girl instead. Um, and so the meshing of the two then is this one scene where they, they, they try to track down who they think is in the dreamality uh, Rita's like actual identity only to find a dead corpse and that's kind of the break 
between the two. And the transition scene occurs in Club Silencio. Mm-hmm. Um, and we'll discuss what that is later on, but that's kind of the, the two different threads here. That was, that was really good. I'm impressed. I don't Thank know you. how anyone can summarize this movie, but that was, uh, yeah, yeah. That's the way to do it. Start with, like, the real world. Yeah, and otherwise, then back. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. And even then, I don't think, like, you know, I feel like even the real world and the dream world, like, there's not, like, entirely clear distinctions. Yeah, and on purpose. On purpose, yeah. Because yeah. I think, right. like, we're almost, while watching the film, you're kind of... It, it points you're thinking like the blue box is causing them to like channel in and out mm. but really it's i think it's it's more binary where the whole time it's a dream and she wakes up yeah yeah the first half uh which like structurally we could call the dream yeah um i like how i feel like like reality though is still always trying to like nudge in or like break down the world or there's mm-hmm. always like signs that something's sort of off um even just going back to like um the like the dog crap in the apartment well, complex when she first gets there yeah. it's like something kind of stinks yeah. or even uh there's like hints like when when betty moves in and she's like i've just moved to this like dream place yeah, yeah. well yeah. even on that point right the film starts where it's obviously the jitterbug thing which has no real frame of reference That's as the first point. time viewer yeah. it's just yeah. like cool was this made on microsoft studio like yeah. <laughs> it's kind of um, kind of poorly yeah, edited. yeah yeah on purpose i think it's, we queued yeah. it up as zach yeah. and you were like yeah i'm in <laughs> i i that is literally exactly what it is yeah and so and then it pans over the bed and it zooms right in and you know some articles i'm reading like that's reference of like going into the dream like putting right. your head to the pillow but then also the first scene of the diner winkies the so i call him unibrow and the other guy that's i, I don't know the actor's yeah, name because yeah. unibrow is actually pretty famous i've seen him in some yeah, stuff yeah. yeah yeah um so unibrow he's talking to the other guy and he's explaining how you know i keep having this dream so yeah. and so and you're over there and we're at this diner and there's a moment where it actually like pulls the veil back and the guy goes over there the dream he explains happens yeah, yeah. yeah. so the guy goes over to the counter and then he can't hear his voice like, yeah the audit- auditory has gone Right, all I can see is the visual, and that's when, for me, like it's proving out that this really is a dreamscape or a dreamality, and this is, yeah. you know, going deeper to that next level. And then the crazy burn victim dumpster scene happens. <laughs> yeah, but, <laughs> yeah, that dirt smeared out the face. Yeah, yeah, but I, there's definitely throughout the movie there is, I think, to your point, like there are scenes that are very deeply based in detail, and it seems very realistic. Yeah. But then, you know, it does push and remind you, like, oh, this is, you know... Something else. Yeah. yeah, the one... the I even commented as we were watching the film, there's when um, Betty, I mean, which is Diane in the yep. reality, yep. shows up for in Hollywood for the first time. It's very, like, colorful and bright, and the audio is almost off. It feels like there's, like, an overdubbing on, yep. the like, what they're, what they're saying. Yeah. Um, and, like, the dialogue... Down, like, the escalators. Yeah, when they're, like, yeah. going down the escalators yeah. and then dropping her off at the with the taxi. Um, mm-hmm. There's, like, yeah, it, like, the, the, I commented, I was like, is the dialogue yeah. off? Is the audio weird? And then it just, yeah. like, gets back to normal, if you yeah. will. So it's like, something's off, you know? Well, and yeah. still, I don't care how friendly you are with someone on a plane... I'm, I've never, you know, like that right there don't for make me is like, this is, yeah. this is not reality. Well, like, this the, is not, the thing that it proved pre, it, it was pre 9 11. People were like, yeah, oh yeah, my yeah. God. The thing that really proved to me that it was fake is the fact that Betty looks down and goes, Where's my luggage? And a taxi driver's like, Oh, I'm loaded in. Where you got to go? Yeah, instead yeah. of like the actual thing, which would be that someone stole her luggage at LAX. Like, yeah. that's much more realistic. <laughs> hey, Betty. <laughs> Welcome. <laughs> Welcome to Los Angeles. You have no clothes. <laughs> and then, um, 
going forward on that scene, I like how, like, so she, she drives off, and it, you always get the shot of, like, the palm trees overhead right. kind yeah. of zooming by. And one thing we observed is, like, you know, it starts off as, like, oh, beautiful L.A., welcome to L.A., but you, you get that shot multiple times throughout the movie, and, like, the last time you see it, you're, like, zoomed in way close, and it's kind of, like, juddery. Yeah. And so by the end, it's, like, those those trees overhanging are, are a little more ominous. I, I mean, in, to, to tangent real quick on, like, the whole, um, like, close-up or shaky cam stuff, I love when Lynch chooses to use that. There's, like, a couple scenes in the film where he moves to, like, using that kind of handheld camera that's, like, a little more, uh, like, grounded, if you will, and kind of jumping all over it. It's um, in the moment when it's showing, like, the, the palm trees, the very last time we see that kind of shot. And then it's also the transition to Club Silencio when, you know, Rita now has the wig... Uh, yeah. The same blonde wig as Betty, and it's like the two of them are going out. Kind of had a Vertigo vibe a little bit. Yeah. Like, conversion of like a woman to like a new role. Just oh, saying. Oh my god. So <laughs> I like uh, I called that out. Like, Can we completely? <laughs> we'll, we'll transition to that. So we talked about like that. we talked like about that. Sunset Boulevard as a as an influence, right? Um, right. I don't know if we really well. Okay. Sunset Boulevard, then Vertigo. Yeah. We'll wrap that up quick. Uh, Sunset Boulevard, the scene where Betty shows up for her audition, is like the same Paramount gate that Norman right. Desmond shows up to yeah. to meet uh, Cecil But they Demille. wouldn't show Paramount, though, which is kind of funny. Right, yeah. they had to cut it off. Yeah. <laughs> and then even her car, Lynch went and found it from like a collector in Vegas, and it's it's parked inside the gate in Mulholland Drive. So oh, like very yeah. clear reference. Yeah, it's the okay. exact same car. Yes. Wow, wow. Um, I, yeah, Norm, Norman Desmond's iconic car. Super explicit. Okay. But, yeah. you know, Vertigo, which uh, we had you last time. Oh, yeah. Here. Bringing it so back. <laughs> I, watching this movie, um, I saw, like, a. that's also another one of Lynch's favorite films, but, like, a visual reference when, when Betty goes to her audition and she's wearing sort of the gray suit. Um, I guess, like, reading all this, like, gray is kind of like an unnatural color for, like, a blonde to wear, and it also, like, what other famous movie can we think of where you put this, like, blonde in a gray suit, yeah. right? Clearly, Ken Novak in Vertigo, you know, why would Lynch want us to draw a mental parallel to Vertigo? Again, yeah, the same sort of, like, uh, split identities, but also the, like, trying to recreate yeah. someone who was lost. Um, like, I think Betty is actually more of, like, the... the James Stewart character in that. I would agree. But what, what, what were you going to say, Jake? No, I, I think for me, I saw the parallel in the sense of like conforming to society, like kind of losing yourselves, whether it's the male gaze, societal gaze, but just, I, I think for me, that's like the the essence of Mulholland Drive. And I think especially Black Swan as well. Yes. Like Ooh. everyone around them is truly driving whatever product they want and there's no real alignment they each have their own weird perverse incentive but they just want the best performance they don't care how yeah. it's reached how it's attained they'll just discard you move you to the next side they'll be like next year we still gotta do black swan or yeah. we still gotta do a movie next month it doesn't matter like see you <laughs> betty we bye cast this movie. yeah yeah you know the they they'll just burn you out they'll use you for what you're worth they'll give you your 15 minutes in the check done yeah see you at the door and i so to pick up on the male gaze thing because i was when i was watching mulholland drive there's those shots where we cut to like the eyes right yep. and i kept wondering like what the hell are we trying to do here like what is this point and originally it was kind of do you know we talked about it matt and i and were like oh it's to establish the connection between characters mm -hmm. but i think it could also serve the purpose of like literally showing a male gaze like you have the director mm -hmm. catching betty and he doesn't 
he doesn't see her acting he doesn't know her acting yeah. potential in that moment all he sees is her figure her yeah. you know appearance similar to what black... he's applying to her yeah yeah he what he's yeah. throwing on him mm-hmm. yeah as which is very similar to yeah. black swan where the director of the dance company is doing the same thing to nina it's mm-hmm. not about her personality because as we discussed in that podcast her personality is kind of like bland and the whole idea is that she's given everything to this ballet she's kind of a follower yeah yeah and so like it's the the dance company director throwing his expectations and throwing his own schemes onto her you know making forcing her to 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 put into this role given his position of authority power similar to the director yeah Um, yeah i think i disagree slightly on the mulholland drive one because i think that at least and but i think you know this is just my my side of it is like that whole sequence is sort of the way I see it is uh, Betty's or Diane's kind of wish fulfillment. Mm. So the like gaze that happens, I think kind of functions at two things. One, it has to give us like a sense that Betty could have got that role if not for, you know, like he looks and he sees her and he has to imply some sort of connection that like Betty could have won this role if not for whatever else. Right. Like, and how how are they going to do that? It has to be through this like connection. Um, so I see that the first time we do it, but then once we realize, like, again, the second half of the reality, like, so Adam, we, as we know, is the, you know, gets with Laura, or sorry, um, Camilla, Camilla, mm-hmm. yeah, I gotta keep all these names straight, Same. Uh, gets with Camilla, who Diane was in love with, yes. so I, looking back on it, I see it as this, like, kind of rupture of the dream a little bit, where, like, they kind of, like, Right, this yeah. person who she in real life kind of hates or who you know stole her love like there's like some sort of like it's creeping into her dream a little bit. so that's a little bit the way yeah, i see yeah. it but I don't, I don't i think the great thing about this movie is it works of, both, ton, yeah. of, ton of ton inter- of interpretations well but, and to to you know the the ton of interpretations in the film there's like a, a video done by i can't remember the channel name Twin Perspectives, Two Perspectives, something like that, and talks about how this is a film that's a mystery, right, to be solved, but the mystery isn't necessarily, like, tracking down, you know, Lynch has, like, different clues that he provided in the uh, DVD, original DVD release, but the mystery is more personal. It's each individual that watches this film yeah. is going to piece this mystery no, together. No, it's like the themselves. Laura Palmer thing. Yeah, yeah, like you, you mentioned, Twin yeah. Peaks. Like, yeah. the whole time, you're like, who killed her? There is a killer, they'll tell you, yeah. but it almost doesn't matter. Because yeah. you're kind of be disappointed a little bit. Like, it doesn't... Yeah. So, would you say then, like, the because in my mind, the litmus test then in Twin Peaks yeah. also applies to the viewer. Oh, similar yeah. to, like, in Mulholland Drive, how there is, like, a what you piece together about the mystery reflects your own sort of thoughts oh, around yeah. Hollywood. Yep. Okay. Oh yeah. Yeah, no, I think that that's like the cool like like you're saying, Matt, like the cool thing about this film in particular is that you can watch it, you can watch it again, and each time you're going through and experiencing it, you're going to piece together a different part of that mystery for yourself. Oh yeah. Yeah, I think I was I was reading through some of the reactions and even um so the actress who played Rita said the first time she watched it she thought it was a you know, it was, a, it was about like the dark side of Hollywood or whatever, but then she said the second time she watched it through she saw it was more kind of like about identity. Right, and, like, losing yourself. So, yeah, like, um, and I mean, especially a movie with this kind of structure, the second time you see it, I think, is, like, a completely different viewing, right, when you know the first half is sort of, like, not quite reality. Well, and to to bring it a little bit meta, I would imagine, and I'm curious to get, you know, your guys' thoughts, on the second viewing of it, knowing everything that you know, do you still, like, 
are you still kind of enthralled with the the the, the first part of it? Are you still well, kind of bought into the I'm story? I'm looking for like hidden Mickey's. Uh, you know, I'm okay. looking for the blue box and this and that. Yeah, <laughs> looking, I'm taking notes. You're like, like pulling it. Right, yeah, she walked from Mulholland Drive to Franklin to Sunset. Yeah, like you said, it's yeah. a two and a half hour walk, depending <laughs> where she's at. She was in heels. Okay, like how like, the hell would you do that? Yeah. <laughs> well, the reason I bring it up is because I feel like even that's kind of an indictment of the Hollywood system, where it's yeah. like even knowing the game, even yeah. knowing the reality you still are like yeah it becomes more cynical in a way you're like yeah piecing together the the hidden mickeys much mm-hmm. like in in you know if you play the game of hollywood it's it's not about what's actually happening it's about mm-hmm. the subtext that's going on underneath yeah. you know it's about all the like implications and the politics that boil beneath the surface as opposed to what's on the screen mm-hmm. or in the case of like the hollywood aspect what's yeah. actually out there oh yeah and i will say second viewing that I didn't see, and, and I did read an article that primed me to look for it. Yeah, and I don't know if we're getting ahead of the game, but yeah, like, let's go for it. Yeah, at the last scene where she is in reality, mm-hmm. and she's kind of having that helter skelter, like these people, entities, whatever you want to call it. Because at one point they're super small, they yeah, look like yeah, ants, yeah, and yeah. they're kind of crawling out of the blue box, if you will. Um, and they're in her apartment. The thing for me that makes it so like I just would have loved to see. Maybe stars or some desperate channel will pick it up, <laughs> but um, you know who knows. Some desperate sci-fi. Yeah, <laughs> Apple TV needs content yeah. here. Um, so yeah, you know I, he might need a project. Pr- Prime Video's running Jack Reacher <laughs> yeah. into the ground. We need. To- <laughs> they found out no one wants James Bond. You know <laughs> the whole MGM thing mm, didn't work out. Yeah. Sorry, keep going. But um. <laughs> the ants they're chasing out of the blue box yeah yeah so basically the thing for me that threads like how we can't really be confident that it is the reality is like when she goes to reach for the gun and kill herself the blue yeah. box is there yeah so uh, in the oh. in the drawer in the drawer the blue box is yep. there oh because yeah. i thought you were going to mention we had talked about how when she goes to shoot there's like smoke that blows it, out behind me. yeah it kills herself it kind of like for me, like, that's almost draw the curtains. That's yeah. like David Lynch um, being like, he wants to clap his hands directorially. So. You, know? <laughs> you, go, you go back to Club Silencio and, you know, Prince of Silencio. Yeah. yeah. No, that's fair. Okay. But yeah, it could no, also be yeah, that yeah. this is just another dreamscape. Yeah. And he's yeah. obsessed with red curtains. I was watching an interview with him and he oh, says yeah. that his favorite moment that he always reflects on as a child and why he loves film is that moment where the curtains, the red curtains in a theater would draw back oh. and you go into a world. Jump into the scape. Yeah. Well, and there's like even, I mean, he just seems to be obsessed with color in general. I've heard that like in like both Twin Peaks and this film, blue is meant to be the color of like secrets or like... I can um, see that. And then Is red. that a line with, like, red pill, blue pill? Probably. Probably. <laughs> the, the blue pill is to accept that there's a secret. The red pill is to break free. Yeah. It could I be. don't know if that's just crossing wires. Pre-matrix. Yeah. Yeah, but maybe. Um, but, yeah, so it seems like that, that there are these kind of, like, specific details that occur in the film yeah. that we're, that you can watch again. And maybe the mystery also transcends to, like, this specific detail you had mentioned the red lampshade what is your hot take on that because well, i kept watching i was like am i counting the cigarette butts like am i the numbers look right like, i think the red lampshade is just you see it at the beginning right when a, a phone call is made yes mm-hmm. and then it's like a mob boss or are yeah. they calling her i think so because then you yeah. see it at the end in um for the Di- hit it's in, like in to Diane's confirm apartment. the hit yeah, yeah. i think it, is it signaling her her like unwillingness to admit in the dreamscape that it's her oh maybe right because it's like her subconscious calling maybe 
I always, yeah, I took the red lampshade to be the signs of danger, right? To me, okay. like, red being an aggressive color. So, like, the whole red lampshade is meant to signal, yeah, the, yeah. like, danger, danger, you're taking this call. This is going to be something that's going to crash your dream. Yeah. And then in this case, it's the call from, hey, the hit yeah. happened. I guess, okay, so the color itself is danger, but I think the recurrence of the lamp, of the lamp also connects it that it is Diane's, potentially. Yeah. Because, yeah, you see it in her apartment. I think that's yeah. the thought. Yeah. yeah. So... So thinking thinking back to blue and secrecy, right? We got the blue box, but we also like blue is kind of like the dominant color of uh, Club Silencio. Or, you know, that's kind yeah. of where we end up at the end. Mm-hmm. Actually, we end up with the blue-haired person and the sort of like blue blue light going on. Um, so Club Silencio, you kind of mentioned that too as like the mid or like the transition point of the movie. Yeah. What, what do we make of it? What happens at Club Silencio? Because to me, first first time I'm watching it, that was always kind of like the oddest. This is an odd movie, but that was always the really oddest out of part. Place. Yeah. 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 I mean, to me, it's like Club Silencio works both as like a metaphor and as like a probably real thing that you could imagine happening. Right? So like the metaphor of Silencio is like, okay, it's, it's a silence around like everybody knows that the dreams of Hollywood are fake, right? Like that it's all, you know... It, it, it's not the glitz and glamour that you could actually think of it. And so Silencio is kind of right. the silence that everyone accepts about this stuff. That a bunch of actresses get kind of used and burned up. Yeah, like we were dis- talking and about. And discarded. Yeah. Like and yeah. like there's this sort of like silence around this topic because you're like, well, you want to preserve movie magic. You want to believe that you can yeah. make it big. Well, no, it's like a big band, but there's no band. Right, you hear the music, but there's there's no one there, and it's Matt's yeah. favorite line. Oh yeah, it's like, no, I Wanda, no. <laughs> there is no band. Yeah, it's uh, we it, hear a trumpet. <laughs> keep yeah, going, no, keep uh, going. You know the whole need scene. to be your Halloween costume. <laughs> <laughs> Only like you know, twenty years too late. Um, but yeah, so it functions functions on the metaphor, and then it also functions in the like real sense of like, yeah, it's a transition. It's meant to signal to the viewer, hey, this is when we're getting out and showing you that there's more in this movie than the first part. Yeah. yeah. I do also think it acts as like a convenient, because if I'm recalling correctly, like that's when they, I think, in her dream, like they become more of a couple, right? I, I think it kind of places oh, them yeah. together it more does. confidently. Like I think they're kind of like, oh, like what is Club Silencio? And then like I think afterwards is the love scene or something. It is, or, yeah. Or before. Yeah. Before, it's before oh, she it she yeah. says okay. silencio but immediately after yeah she's like we gotta go here yeah they're like yeah they make love and then she's sitting in the bed and it says silencio and then yeah they leave yeah. and then it cuts to like the hand camera moving up to them coming into the yellow <laughs> yeah. i just i love that shot i love yeah. that shot it's yeah. like blair witch yeah kind of stuff. <laughs> i mean i will see so like you know betty telling rita that she loves her is kind of like the the sort of apex of this yeah. dream sequence mm-hmm. right and then so immediately after that happens it really is like the climax yes yeah. immediately yeah. after that is that it's like all right we gotta like this thing's over like we are you know the dream's gonna start to break down once it's kind of reached its peak and the breakdown happens at club silencio right rita wakes up she's like we gotta go to club silencio and you go there right we get no Ibanda we get right it's all it's all a recording yeah it's um, pre-recorded yeah and then I talk about my my second favorite sequence of the film is when they bring on Rebecca Del Rio and she sings a uh, Robertson's yeah, yeah. crying crying yeah. in Spanish um, I think it's better than the yeah, original yeah, yeah. I, I, I listened to the original <laughs> just and I was like oh, okay but uh, actually, Lynch does like Roy Orbison because he uses In Dreams um, in Blue Velvet to great effect, too, as mm. well. So he's a Roy Orbison guy. But yeah, 
Um, that scene, right? The the host has just spent three minutes repeating over and over, like there is no band; it's all an illusion. Right. And then we get this really like powerful performance where you know we're zooming really close, going back to reactions of like. Um, uh, uh, Betty and Rita. Betty and Rita, like yeah. crying, like because the lyrics of the song are about like lost love, right? Yeah. Um, and then, as we all know, like Rebecca Del Real like collapses halfway through, and right. the song keeps going because it's a recording. And nah. And it gets me every time because you know I've seen this movie a few times now, and every time I still get sucked in, believing the this performance, um, even knowing that it's just a re- you know quote unquote just a recording. Um, and so I think that's when they realize, you know, in this in the dream that you know it's all kind of fake and it's all falling apart. Maybe their love also, you know, isn't real. Well, and I think that's because, like, as a viewer, and you, maybe this goes back to the litmus test. Like, as a viewer, you probably want to believe that it could be real, right? Like, as much as Diane is making this up in the dream, as you as we learn in the second half, like you as a viewer still want to believe that there's a reality here, that this love is real, that this whole Hollywood dream is is as real and could be pursued, that the movie magic is there. And it, you know, because no one wants to like, in my opinion, at least going into this film, you don't want to immediately be cynical and think like, oh yeah, the whole thing's a sham. It's all a cabal. It's all mafia bros. No, it's like you want to believe that it's actually legitimate. Um, That's why he has to show us the dream part first and not second. Um, I think that the dream part is also we see like Betty as this very like cheerful, idealistic like person that we can get behind when in reality that makes it even when we see Diane in the second half, like, and she's, you know, she's a little more like sallow and awkward and like doesn't seem as like likable as Betty, but we, we still kind of see Betty like behind, behind her eyes. Right. That's why we need that first part uh, to bring into the second part. Yeah. No, I agree. The, the movie works really well in that two-act segment where, and then you're able to to get both like the 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 kind of dirtier side, if you will, of of Diane of, of Hollywood, as well as the the clean aspect of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean that's uh that's I yeah I think that's Mulholland Drive though. I mean summed it all up. Yeah. Yeah. No uh, need to get into burn or the uh, the burn victim. I you know <laughs> I think there's still plenty to talk about. Yeah. Uh, there, I think, there's like I threads think, to pull on here and there, right? Yeah. And I think that's why it it really would be amazing if it got picked up as a series because I think that's where yeah. the world does have too much context. Like the comical scene where Billy Ray gets mm. beat up like yeah. that doesn't really need to be there. It doesn't serve a purpose. I don't know if it really fleshes out character development besides the wife and Billy Ray. Yeah. It doesn't give yeah. the director, uh, like... Or, like, the fumbled assassination. Yeah, right? where he kills three people so, instead yeah. of... Yeah, yeah so my, just... my, my theory on that is it's Diane... Diane having this dream, she's imagining that the assassin is actually, like, incompetent. So that maybe in real life he actually fumbled the assassination, and she's also kind of imagining Adam being like cuckolded. Uh, you know, again, I don't know if that's actually the the story, but you know, she's yeah. these these different characters. She's imagining them a certain way. She wants them, right? Adam being embarrassed, uh, the assassin that she hired actually being incompetent and maybe not fulfilling the job. That's fair. It it, yeah. it it might go back to like the whole notion of like naivety versus like cynicism, if you will, where it's. 
the the idea that you want to give some kind of storyline or some kind of narrative behind the actions that like Adam or the hitman would do when maybe the you know what Diane is is realizing is that sometimes people just do bad things because they just are bad people in some way right like the hitman doesn't need to be a bumbling hitman maybe the reason he accepts these jobs is because he just needs money and he'll kill people for money kind of thing you know like that's just and so in her dream she wants to instead give it some sort of narrative of oh he's a bumbling guy and you know it's it's his the reason he's a hitman is just because he couldn't really make it anywhere else so he's just sort of like in this position yeah i think what's weird though there is a moment where like he is trying to save her right when it's reality and Mm. he's explaining the process in the blue key he's like he asked her i think like three times yeah are you sure yeah you sure like okay it's like when i do that yeah like there's no going back yeah so no and it's it's even i mean i think what diane says that i've never been more sure of anything else in my life yeah it's like a very more very pointed answer are you sure you want this she does more than anything more than anything that's what it is yeah which you know does that kind of whole like the hitman, the 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 director. Does that also act on like a metaphorical level? Do we think, or is that really just meant to show like the lengths Diane goes to, um, you know, within her dream in order to give it a different story, but then in the reality in order to pursue this Hollywood dream? I mean, I think there's an angle there, but I just. I don't know. I think the diner for me is something else entirely. Like, I think it's more... Because just if I think about, like, Twin Peaks, like, okay. Killer Bob, like, he's he's basically, like, a trans-dimensional entity who, like, harvests or lives off of the soul of humans, and he embodies people to go and harvest them. And so that's, for me, what Burn is. That's like, the if this guy behind Winkies? Yeah, that's yeah. the guy behind Winkies. It would have been Spoiler maybe... for Twin Peaks, man. Just saying. So <laughs> it's out there. Sure, 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 sure. But, yeah, but keep... that's the thing. The Twin Peaks is so great because that doesn't matter, honestly. Yeah. Like, when yeah. you get that answer, it's pretty disappointing. Like, it's very, like, all right. Like, supernatural. Yeah, no, it's like the answer for it. You're like a trans-dimensional turtle. You're like, really? Yeah. Steven? Like, was the, did you get hit by a car and this is what you came up with? <laughs> or it was a, it was a spider. Right? I thought like, it was a spider. Yeah. <laughs> either way, though. Spider turtle, yeah. Well, see, that's why I think, like... The, well, it, the monster, but the turtle, uh, the good being right, right, that right. saved everyone. Who, yep. Yeah. I've also never seen it, oh. so... Well, the book is pretty good, actually. I guess I need to read the book. Yeah. But um, I, to go back to Burn, though, like, I think that that's just... And, and this is... um. This is also borrowing from that same like two perspective twin perspective channel video about um, Stephen Lynch liking to pull abstractions and personify them the personification of abstractions and I feel like the burn that entity is meant to represent the like corruption of Hollywood that exists within like always right around the corner right yeah. always kind of peeking around that next thing you you know that it's there you know it's you're going to run into it at some point but it will still always surprise you when you do. And so the symbolism of, of, of that specific character holding the blue box at, you know, towards the end, I think is to show that, like, the Hollywood dream is within the hands of this corrupt kind of mm-hmm. disfigured entity. It's, yeah, it's not in your hands. Yeah, it's, it's not in your it's hands. It's what we allow. Yeah. yeah. Um, which, you know, there, you could probably keep pushing on that same notion, but I think leaving it at just the level of, like, yeah, it symbolizes the under-seething underbelly of, of any place that we give okay. dreams to. Because, you know, we, the viewer, put so much expectation on Hollywood as well, right? Like, in the minds of someone who's just a fan of films or a fan of movies, you know, we don't necessarily know all of the background that goes into the making of 
of a Mulholland Drive, of a Sunset Boulevard. You can read about it, but the actual experience of that you'll never feel as a viewer, Yeah. right? Yep, that's, I think, why David Lynch, he called this uh, a love story in the city of dreams was the tagline he assigned to it when people asked. And so I think it's also, like, you know, straightforward. You could say it's, you know, Betty's love for, you know, it's her love with Rita, but I think it's also like our audience, the way that audiences are in love with movies yeah. in the, the dream machine of Hollywood. Yeah. Um, I think it functions on two levels there. And oh, to, yeah. to connect that to Black Swan then. Bringing it full circle. Bringing it full circle. Well, because, so the story we get in Black Swan is the achievement of perfection by an individual person and the death that it causes and the psychological breakdown mm-hmm. at her expense. At her expense, yeah. right? And what you have in Mulholland Drive then is the attempt to achieve a dream at the expense of everyone along the way mm-hmm. within this specific place, right? And so both of them are shot in a similar way, this sort of surrealist psychological dimension. Yeah. But then like what they're also kind of showing you is that, yeah, as you get the pursuit of this like ideal or the pursuit of this like unobtainable thing, perfection in the case of Black Swan or the Hollywood dream in the case of Mulholland Drive. Success. Success, if you will, yeah. Yeah. Ultimately destroys those who go along with it. And so it raises the question, I think both films, of like, is it even worth it? Is is it worth it to try and strive for perfection? Is it even worth it to try and strive for success? Or should there be some kind of other like middle you know because it's like as the audience you just see them on the stage yeah you don't see them sitting in the hotel room you don't see them like hating themselves by themselves yeah Yeah. you you don't see the hours and hours of grueling retakes and reshoots and redos you don't take the hours and hours of dance practice like that gross backroom scene honestly was super cringe with the old dude and Yeah, yeah right like you you don't see all all of the stuff that goes on behind you only see the product and so and I'll take it one step further. You don't see all the people who tried and didn't make it. Yeah. See, oh, yeah. Yeah. You see, you see the actresses who did make it to, to screen. You don't see the ones who all burned out. You yeah. Know? Yep. And I think, so I think both of these film kind of, it, this might be a little bit of stretch, so call me out if it is, but I think both of these films kind of call into question, like, is the point of art to achieve this perfect ideal or is the point of art to just kind of express something very personable and very, or not personable, very, um, personal to whoever the creator is right maybe black swan like swan lake the uh, the the dance director the leader of the dance company trying to achieve perfection instead he could have just done swan lake in a very expressive way that would have allowed each of the dancers and ballerinas to show off their own talent but no instead he chooses to try and strive for this ideal perfection Mulholland Drive, they could have just shot these films that, you know, lower budget, maybe aren't in Hollywood, but they just do it to create something. But instead, by kind of going along with this Hollywood system, by trying to achieve success, mm-hmm. dollars, budget, you know, box office breakers, all that kind of stuff, maybe they could have just created a film that they like. You know, what's the point of art? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Or it's like the conflict of art versus industry. I mean, there you go. Yeah. Maybe that's a better way to put it. Yeah. yeah. Art is an, incre- an inherently creative process versus industry, which is well, productive. It's like that scene in the boardroom, right? Yeah. Where he comes in and they're like, she's the girl. This yeah. is the girl. Yeah. Yeah. He's like, no, 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 no. You know, and it's, I, I think to your point, right? It, I think, and that's even commentary for, I think, David Lynch as well, where you think the director has all the say. I'm sure he's It's not even the studio. It's not even the actor. It's actually who has the money. Yeah, who has the finance, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Which then I love how they bring that back when uh, Diane is asking for the hit and she pulls out the head shot and she goes, this is the girl. Yeah. 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 Um, Yeah. 
Yeah. Art versus industry. I think we stumbled into what the theme that ties the two films together is. <laughs> that's oh. pretty, yeah, that's pretty cool. I yeah. don't think we had that at the beginning. No, we um, didn't. But I like it. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like we've wrapped it up. I do want to like. I'm going to tack on one thing, uh, which is just like my favorite scene in this movie. Yeah, do it. Because uh, like we've, we've done a very in depth discussion. I just want to like appreciate just like the film film craft. That's in true. General. We can take it a step. Back. Um, yeah. Like not trying to prolong the discussion, but like one scene that like I always love when I watch. It's after she wakes up from her dream, and she's at the counter making coffee, and your brain's still trying to process like what the heck is going on, um, but it. And then she kind of looks to her left, and, like, her face gets, uh, Diane's face gets, like, really distorted, right? And then she sees, like, um, Camilla, right? And she's like, Camilla, you came back. And then, but it immediately, like, cuts back, right, from, like, the other side. So yeah. it, it switches, like, the, the angle, I guess. And then you realize Camilla's not there, and she's just standing, standing there, like, alone in her depressing apartment. I think what the, what one just, like, cut does so well for me is it captures, like, the, the drabness of her exterior world. Right, just how like gray and dull it is. Yeah. Now that she's like lost this person, it's monotone. Yeah. yeah. While still showing how her interior world is in like such turmoil yeah. over losing this person, right? Yeah. Which like, uh, it's like one of my favorite shots from the movie. That's good. Oh, it's yeah, just like yeah. a cut. Well, Camilla's yeah. like glowing when she's yeah, there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's absolutely stunning. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, that is a great shot. The drabness of the exterior world, but the turmoil of the interior, interior world, world over losing this person. Yeah. And I think a lot of that, to that point, I think is the film, like Mulholland Drive itself, it's what you make of it, right? It yeah. can be a windy road where you could drive off the edge of the cliff, or it can be a beautiful place where you're in the back of a limo. Or you take a shortcut to the top, too. Yeah. <laughs> like Camilla did, right? <laughs> There's a shortcut, yeah. 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 Well, uh, Jake, want to thank you for being a guest thank on the Jake. podcast. Yeah. My pleasure. Um, yeah. We bring you in for the heavy hitters. I think we really do. <laughs> no, I like we're we're sitting at like over forty five minutes here. This is probably our longest episode to date, and you were here with yeah. us the whole way. Yeah. Our listeners, hopefully, you're still with, if you made it this part. You know, like, <laughs> oh, through all the the windy roads. Uh, thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Thank. Yeah. Thank you. Shout out to the listeners that have stuck with us throughout the windy road. Um, look forward to the next uh, set of, of of episodes. We'll um, we'll figure out what the you know leave us your suggestions on themes or movies you'd like us to explore. As always, we'll we'll figure out what the next uh, round will be. Yep. Uh, but until then, uh, make sure to do your homework. Yep. So let's see how. Yeah. <laughs>